Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. This week on Backroom Politics, chaos continues on the Gaza Strip as the rocket fire exchange continues to occur, while here in the United States, the border crisis in the southern section of our country continues to loom with the ever-growing population of unaccompanied minors. The Kremlin, the CIA, and the battle over a forbidden book. Special guest, Washington Post, Peter Finn, will join us talking about his book, The Zhivago Affair. And... Redistricting in Texas, possibly Florida, is this enough to get redistricting out of the hands of the legislature and into the hands of people who know what they're doing? Listen, tell me a story today on Back... Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. out there in Radio Land. It's Tuesday. We're back live here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. Joining me to my left, as he usually does, he is the former eight-term member of Congress representing the second congressional district of Washington. He's the Honorable Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman. Hello, and I hope everybody's doing well in this weather. I hope so, too. And to my 11 o'clock, he is the former floor chief for then-Congressman Gerald R. Ford, former vice president of government affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is 30 Rock's own, Bob Hines. Hello, Bob. Hello, Justin. Glad to be back alive. It is good to be back alive. And to my 1130, he is the former lobbyist for 20th Century Fox, longtime Washington insider and former executive director of the Democratic Party of the great state of Maryland. He's Carl Tuvin. Hi, Carl. Hello, Justin, and we're all waiting for the vortex to come and cool us off. I hope so. God, I hate this weather. Except for Capitol Hill. Oh, God, true. And to my one o'clock, he is across the table. He is the former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Affairs. He is longtime Senate insider and longtime Senate staffer and a very distinguished and happy fellow from the Stimson Center. He is the Honorable... Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. Gentlemen. And to my right, he is longtime political operative and 
attorney here in Washington, D.C., a very left-wing kind of Democratic kind of guy. He is Dan Lipner. Hello, Dan. Hey, Justin. Glad to be here. Uh, thanks for having us. Lots of stuff we're going to have going on at the 5 o'clock hour. We're going to have Peter Finn from the Washington Post in to talk about his book, The Zhivago Affair. Great story if you haven't read up on it. He's going to tell us all about the book. But we've got a big show to talk about. First up is the continuing crisis inside Gaza. Uh, Since we have not been on the air in two weeks, we'll give you a little bit of quick background. Situation between the Palestinian Authority and the Israeli government got heated up after three Israeli teenagers were, for all intents and purposes, murdered in Gaza. It created a whole new security force, and then Israeli vigilantes went out, and they attacked Palestinian youths, and they were killed, and that has created now a, 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 what has now become a conflict. Some are calling it now even a new six-day war, but for what is going on, it has escalated over the past seven days. We now know, as of this morning, that the Egyptian government has proposed a ceasefire, uh, which this morning the Israeli cabinet accepted the terms of that ceasefire. Uh, However, the Palestinians had some pushback on that. Uh, It is a proposed ceasefire. Uh, It would allow the Egyptians to call for a de-escalation of fighting, starting at 9 a.m. local time in Gaza, with the total calm of 12 hours later. Within 48 hours of the the ceasefire, Egypt would, quote, high-level delegations from both Israeli and Palestinian factions would join at the table to talk in indirect talks in terms of implementing a final truce. As of this afternoon, rocket fire has continued. This is a really destabilizing question, situation, and and, and just a really big powder keg in in an area of the country, or the area of the world, that is just such an already unstable at, at best. Alan Morley, start with you. This escalated very quickly. Some have compared it to a similar interaction, a similar violence that happened back in 2009, but those who are in Israel and in Palestine and a lot of observers globally are saying, this is nothing like 2009. This thing's really got some instability and could escalate even further than it already has. What do, what do you think? Well, I, I'm the, the wrong one to ask about a, a comparison to 2009 because I don't know, I don't recall enough about what happened in 2009. What I can say is this: it happened very quickly because the region is always a powder keg, and. And over a period of years of relative quiet and then failed uh, talks, uh, most recently with the the high-profile efforts of uh, U.S. uh, Secretary of State John Kerry, which in effect came to naught, um, the the, the acquisition by Hamas of still more missiles that have still longer range um, under presumably the control of more than one entity embedded in civilian uh, neighborhoods, um, looking, I would guess, I would sense, for a provocation, found one and started lobbing hundreds, they're now up to nearly a thousand missiles. The Israelis have not been standing uh, aside doing nothing for the last few years. They strengthened the so-called uh, Iron Dome anti-missile system. And they have 
they have continued to expand and improve access to underground shelters. They've got air raid sirens that, that see incoming and, and alert people. So what you've got is a thousand missiles over the last couple of weeks coming in from all from uh, uh, from Gaza, and then no one. Well, today someone died for the first time in, on the Israeli side from one of these missiles. But by and large, it's it's disruptive. It's terrorism. The the death toll has been low. The the the, the building damage has has been higher, but then they've responded to the areas from which uh, these things came and other targets where they have identified leaders of Hamas. So you've got a couple of hundred deaths and hundreds more um, uh, injuries on the, on the Gaza side. It's, uh, it is a god-awful mess. Um, both sides have it in their interest at times to escalate, and then both sides have it in their interest but those interests don't always line up neatly and evenly. Um, each time this happens, and it's happened a couple of times in the last eight years, everything seems to escalate. And, and uh, we can only uh, uh, hope that reason will prevail and that if Hamas says we will agree to a ceasefire, that they have the ability to, uh, to do that. And that's a huge question, whether they really can control all of these independent parties. Carl Tuvin, you know, when we look at the Israeli response, uh, it, it seems that the normally hawkish Benjamin Netanyahu took a somewhat softer stance this morning when he proposed the Egyptian proposal and the cabinet adopted that proposal before the deadline. It, it seems that Tel Aviv has engaged in, look, let's de-escalate this at some point. That's a very drastic change from the Benjamin Netanyahu that we know. What would compel him, in your opinion, to do this? Well, first of all, you've got you to look at the history. In 2010, <clears throat> we went into uh, Gaza. In 2012, we had the, golden, we had the dome which protected Israel. We have the dome today. The Iron Dome. The Iron Dome. We have the dome today. The Iron Dome today, which protects Israel, except for this one child who was killed sometime in the last 24 hours. <clears throat> I think he, he does not want to attack uh, Gaza. But if they persist, I think he would have to, to say, okay, we're going to go in, we're going we're gonna to occupy, we're going to clean out these spots as best we can, and then we will, we will, you know, resist. But I don't, I really don't think he and the Knesset wants to do that. They would like to, to have somebody come in and moderate it. Dan Lipner. It's a tough situation, but it's, it's, it's worth noting that there's a separation between what's going on in Gaza and what's going on in the West Bank that Gaza has been the headache, the West Bank has been relatively stable, not to say that they're the best of friends with, it, with Israel, but uh, the Palestinian Authority has actually been doing all right. It's Hamas and the extremist veto that, that they've been exercising repeatedly uh, that make the whole situation difficult. But it's also worth noting, uh, we, we did mention the, the murder of the three uh, Israeli youth, one of which was actually had dual citizenship uh, as American. Um, 
but there's also a Palestinian youth that was also abducted and murdered by Israeli radicals as well. So there, there's a lot at play here. And it, if you don't have a, what the Israelis have been looking for for its entire existence is a partner in peace. And if you don't have a credible partner, what do you do? And that's been a reoccurring theme throughout all the conflicts since Israel's creation. But Bob Hines, when we... When we look at the U.S. response, the U.S. response, according to large groups that I've talked to of international observers, has been lackluster at best. There hasn't been a really defined message coming out of Washington. Secretary Kerry has not really upped the game to get this de-escalated. It seems to me that this is just another stick in the Obama foreign policy that they just can't get around. This is now a a national security issue with our alliance with Israel. Can they fix it? No, I don't think the United States can fix it. I mean, literally, if if Hamas keeps wanting to throw missiles at the Israelis, the Israelis are going to respond. And they seem to be willing to do it. But, you know, and, and there's nothing that we can do to really to really encourage anybody else. I mean, obviously, if you're having missiles thrown at you, you're going to do something to stop them if you can. And I don't blame the Israelis for it. I think they should, that's normal. And I don't think there's any way that we would have any influence at all on those crazy people in Gaza. Does, does, Congressman Al, did Obama's original take on Israel, because a lot of uh, Israeli supporters here in America, they felt that, he had given a lukewarm reception when he first became president in his first term, was more sympathetic to the Palestinian plight versus the Israeli plight. Has that taken away some of our substance and the ability to try and broker a deal in this current conflict? That takes a little bit of thought. I, that isn't where I thought you were going. <clears throat> it seems to me that, that the answer is probably yes, but not to, uh, to a huge degree. The thing that I thought about the policy that uh, the president had originally was that was that uh, we had been kind of seen as uh, the, the the loyal ally, the big brother, the the handholder of Israel, and I thought for years we kind of overplayed that. <clears throat> Not that we weren't necessary to be involved, but that we were kind of overplaying it. Uh, and that, so I welcomed what the president did at that time. Since then, I'm not so sure. But, uh, Carl Tubin. There's, there's one problem with the Egyptians being the, uh, the people that brings us together, <clears throat> because Egypt closed the tunnels and cut off money from Hamas uh, a couple of years ago. And a lot of people are saying that you know, Hamas you know, might not want to sit down with the Egyptians and the Israelis to, to bargain this out. Well, it's worth noting, a thousand missiles were smuggled in. So I'm going to guess those tunnels may have reopened along the way. This is not exactly a... Uh, right. That's true, and that's why we're, we're trying to hit those tunnels Today. But, you know, it's, it, but it seems every time that when, when we get into a conflict, especially now with the Iron Dome system over Israel, that 
the numbers are just unusually large of casualties, and uh, the Palestinian Authority is now reporting 80% civilian casualty rates as a result of the recent escalation of violence. Israel has lost a total of four individuals as a result of the Palestinian aggression. It, it seems to me that the, the Palestinian Authority should realize anytime they want to escalate this, this is going to be a large-scale hit on their civilian population. Why does that elude them? Go to Alan Moore and then Carl Tubin. First of all, remember, it's not, it, this is not the Palestinian Authority. This is Hamas. And, and I wanted to, first of all, mention, building on Dan's comment, that, that when the Palestinian Authority and Hamas announced two months ago that they were going to join forces, that, that scared the hell out of, of Israel and the rest of the world. Because before, there was some hope that you could keep these two sides who were in conflict with each other separate. And as, as Dan said, in, in, in the West Bank, things were, have been relatively stable, and, and the problem is coming from the Hamas-controlled area in Gaza, and it, it's, it's hard to know whether there's any buyers. But let, me, let, let, let me jump in. Hold on. Let me, let me just jump in here real quick, though. I want to ask you this question. When you talk about separating the Palestinian Authority from Hamas, it seems to me, at least my personal view, that you can't separate them, that they have literally become such a powerful force in the governance of Palestine that one equates to the other. Why is that an unfair assumption? Why is that unfair, Carl Tubin? Because, because Hamas is acting on its own. They, they are trying to show that they have control of Gaza. They're trying to throw a a wrench and say, look, look what we've done to Israel. The problem is with the, with the death toll is that Hamas puts these uh, missile sites and their ammunition sites in civilian targets. Under mosques, in schools, next to schools, everywhere. And, 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 and Israel has been dropping leaflets and, and saying to people, get out of your homes, get out of the area, etc. And Hamas is saying, don't leave your homes. You stay there. Dan Lipner. Well, the, prob is, the problem is bigger than that because Gaza is not, is not a sustainable entity. There's the, 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 it's, a, it's size smaller than D.C. with a population two and a half times the size with no commerce or ability to trade with anyone. So the question is, how do you stop breeding extremists when you have a population that has pretty much no other choice than to try and fight for sustaining their own lives? And it does now the Israeli pushback and response to the attacks is also not not unfounded. But unless the international community says let's make Gaza into something that can sustain itself in some reasonable way. Of course, there's going to be continued escalations because people want to survive. Bob Hines. I think one of the things we should be happy about is that the Palestinian Authority, which has, you know, in effect, joined in, themselves in with Hamas and, and, and the Gaza group, uh, they have stayed out of this completely. They have not made any violent statements about what a terrible thing the Israelis are doing. They have kept quiet. 
I think it was a very wise decision on their part. And I think that at some point, and I don't know, you know, it's hard to tell because the, the folks who are running Gaza are such a bunch of uh, uh, rather dangerous people and uh, are more interested in killing people than they are anything else. Uh, the only thing they're doing is killing their own people. Well, I, I mean, that, that's obvious just from the casualty numbers coming out of the region. But, Ellen Moore, this morning, uh, in, the, in the announcement of the acceptance of the Egyptian proposal for ceasefire, Benjamin Netanyahu said, and I quote, we have accepted the Egyptian proposal in order to provide the opportunity for demilitarizing the Gaza Strip of rockets and tunnels by diplomatic ways. He further goes on, quote, but if Hamas does not accept the ceasefire proposal, and right now it looks that way, Israel will have every international legitimacy to expand its military operation to restore the necessary calm. That sounds like ground invasion into Gaza to me. Is this a possibility, and does that put, does that put Israel into a really difficult situation? Well, they're in a difficult situation. Yes, there's a realistic possibility that they might do a ground invasion, but whatever they do, there's going to be enormous amount of anger in some parts of the world and support uh, in others. I think that Netanyahu's statement is very interesting, though, where he says, we accept the Egyptian proposal, which, as I understand it, was just, let's have a ceasefire and then we'll talk from there. But he overcharacterizes, it seems, by saying, I accept their, their proposal to get the, to close the tunnels and, and get rid of the missiles and get the missiles out, which I don't think was was, was the, part of the Egyptian, Egyptian proposal. proposal. Now, I, I don't have a big quarrel with with a politician taking a grain of something and letting it grow. Shocking. Politicians do that all the time. Um, I, but I but I don't sense that there's a uh, that that there's a huge stomach throughout Israel to have a major land invasion of thousands and thousands of troops with, with lots of casualties on both sides, clearly more on the, on the, uh, the Gaza side and clearly with lots of civilians. Carl Tuvin, though, there is a, a peace section of the general population inside Israel. There's a large sector of the population uh, particularly in Tel Aviv, that are pushing for a more peaceful approach to Palestine in dealing with not only the Palestinian authorities, but obviously with Hamas. Does ground invasion put his government, him being Benjamin Netanyahu, in a difficult situation? Can his government survive a full-scale invasion? It's a possibility. <clears throat> the only time he's going to do a full-scale investigation... Invasion. Invasion is if Hamas keeps throwing rockets at Israel and if they won't stop, then he'll do it. And as far as the rest of the world is concerned, some of the some we've got Israel has gotten support from people that they hadn't had support before. Uh, also, uh, it's even been noted that on some of the TV stations, CNN, I think Jake Tapper uh, has 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 come out uh, very strongly for Israel, and other uh, networks have come out very strongly for Israel. So, you know, that has to be into the, You're right, there is a peace group that would wanted peace at, at any cost uh, at the last round of, uh, of talks. 
and it just didn't happen. Bob Hines. I doubt that uh, Israel will want to send troops in. They they would uh, increase their uh, the number of Israelis killed very very much just because they'd be on the ground and fighting. It seems to me that the the all they have to do at this time right now is every time anybody throws a missile at them, they throw they throw a whole bunch back and they aim them at where their missiles are coming from and they do what they can to stop the system. Eventually, I think that the pressure is going to get it's going to be so great from whatever friends uh, Hamas has anyplace else, they're just killing their own people. That is going to they're going to be stopped by outside friends saying you're you're just killing yourself. Dan Lipner, what evidence of this of the 60 some odd years that this has been going on? That that's been the case. I mean, the, the great line that the Palestinians never miss an opportunity and miss an opportunity is continue is this continuing theme. Yeah, but they have stopped at times, and I think they'll stop they, again. They stop from brute force, yeah. not not from negotiation. Oh no, I think, but I think they'll stop shooting rockets over at Israel eventually. Once they stop having rockets, is yeah. when they stop yeah, shooting rockets. Right, yeah. Congressman Al. I really tend to agree with Dan. I, I read a book recently. Uh, about great feuds, mm-hmm. and uh, I thought one that, that was probably going to be a funny one was the Hatfields and the McCoys. They had all these serious historical, and, and they had, well, it turns out that was not silly and fun. It was a very serious thing, and how it finally ended was that Grandpa <coughs> and son and grandchildren, each generation moved a little bit farther away from being interested in this until finally Grandpa was so old he was off selling peanuts somewhere and and the uh, the, the younger Hatfields and McCoys weren't interested in it any longer. That is not going to happen in the Mideast because countries aren't like individuals. The generational changes don't happen that way. Nobody is going to lose interest in the Mideast, and I think it's going to be around for a long time. Dan Lipner, when when we look at the U.S. traditionally having the ability to convey a message of restraint to the leadership in Tel Aviv, particularly with Benjamin Netanyahu and previous administrations, we're not there in this current administration. That relationship has been strained. Does the administration possibly regret the fact that they may have taken a proactive approach to the Palestinian question versus the 100% backing of Israel that we've had in the past? Uh, I would actually, I would, I would push back on that. I, I would actually say that the Obama administration has followed the Bush administration's lead on this and gone hands off, um, with the except, with with the only added caveat of Netanyahu being in office, who is who has been called out as being a, shall we say, a challenging leader, not just with us but with other world leaders on the stage, um, that there. There hasn't been much. I would say that that the Obama administration's absolute silence on on the issues of, of the abduction of both the Israeli youth and the Palestinian youth does does give a silence 
to the moral authority that this is something that is not done on either side. That opportunity to speak up and that moral authority was something that is lost, and that is inexcusable. Carl Tubin, last comment. John Kerry has been in this thing up to his eyeballs, and I think he has he has been he has tried to to bring these two groups together, and uh, it, it just didn't happen. And John Kerry is still involved in this. Uh, um, he was going to if, if the if they had accepted the, the both sides had accepted the Egyptian plan, he was going to be in Cairo to try to help move this thing along. Yeah, but, so, but, but the, the, the president might not be personally involved, but Kerry has, I think, been there and tried to be very helpful to both sides. But, but Alan Moore, real quickly, the last two minutes we've gotten a segment. When we look at John Kerry's comments, John Kerry, his comments today was, I cannot... I cannot condemn strongly enough the actions of Hamas in so brazenly firing rockets in the face of a goodwill effort to offer a ceasefire. The Palestinians come back and say, we were not part of this announcement. We were not part of this agreement. And Hamas and the Palestinian Authority are saying, look, we didn't have a dog in this fight when you guys came up with this. We're not agreeing to this. It, it just seems that we're continuing to miss the ball on having our finger on what the current situation is in these international efforts. You know, in this particular case, as has been said, we've got it's, it's we, we've got about 70 years almost now of, of of history, and and we don't control this. We can operate around the edges, around the fringe, but when the when when things bubble up and they burst. To some extent, we have to wait it out. We have to wait till they run out of missiles. We have to wait until international sentiment at some point turns in a particular way. We have to wait until a Hamas missile lands on a hospital and kills a couple hundred people. So there are things that, that the U.S. Can't do. I, I, I certainly don't disagree with Dan that we've probably missed a few opportunities to, to take to, to, to take a, a higher moral authority. That I don't think that would have affected the outcome, but it would have been a reminder that there are things that the U.S. feels strongly enough about that it's not afraid to speak out. We've, we've gotten very tentative all around the world, but in this particular case, it's not there yet. Hopefully it will be soon. Congressman, now 30 seconds. But the idea that there is a solution that can be brought about if we do the right thing and if we do this, that, and other, and it doesn't work, we have failed, is total nonsense. We are not going to solve this thing. Good Our point. job is to keep a lid on it as much as we can, to manage it as much as keep we can. Keep it contained. Keep it, keep it contained. And, uh, and, and 70 years from now, we will probably be dealing with the same thing. Well, we're going to obviously be keeping an eye on this. this Maybe probably... you, but not me. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to be keeping an eye on this. This is probably going to be a topic next week as well. So keep, keep, keep tuned in. When we come back, we're going to talk about the ever-escalating crisis here in America on the southern border. The unaccompanied minor situation continues to escalate and continues to baffle the federal government. This is Backroom Politics, live from Shelley's Backroom on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us.
you know, for those who listen to Backroom Politics and know about Shelley's Backroom, they think of it as some sort of cigar bar where politicians go to smoke their cigars and drink their martinis. Actually, what you don't know about Shelley's Backroom, Shelley's Backroom has one of the greatest menus in the city. I kid you not. You've got the campfire wings, famous campfire wings, one pound of roasted, not fried, seasoned marinated jumbo chicken rings served with their own special honey mustard sauce. Folks, if you like chicken wings, you've never had the campfire wings. Best wings in the city, bar none, I guarantee. If you don't like it, Al, you can call us up and tell us that you don't like it. Uh, You have daily specials. Come down on a day when they have the Justin Chicken Sandwich. The sandwich named after me. Breaded chicken breast, provolone cheese, thick cut bacon on a Kaiser roll served with a honey mustard sauce. Folks, it doesn't get more artery clogging than that, but it is worth it. Come down to Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., the premier sponsor of Backroom Politics. Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics on Law Talk Radio. Changing gears, getting more domestic. We've got a situation that continues to escalate over the past month down on the southern border. The unaccompanied minor situation is becoming a humanitarian crisis. The, uh, the, the, the latest coming out of the, uh, out of the southern border, according to a Washington Post-ABC poll, uh, finds that the public is unhappy with the administration's handling it. 58% disapprove and are unhappy with the way that the administration has handled the unaccompanied minor program. As such, we continue to see a huge influx of minors making a very dangerous trip out of some very dangerous areas. Uh, since we last broadcast, the Obama administration requests a $3.7 billion 
budget supplement for dealing with this unaccompanied minor situation. Uh, there have been calls for the use of National Guard. There have been calls for all kinds of things. But the bottom line here is it is quickly escalating out of control. Uh, Congressman Al, you have a thought on this. I wanted to ask a question about the poll. So many people are opposed to the administration program. Do they even know what the administration program is? Does the, the administration, administration know? know the admi well, the problem is the administration. That's never a requirement for polling questions. <laughs> you don't have to know what they're talking about. But actually, it's are you in, in a way that's okay. It's do you like what they're doing? Answer no. Yeah, and and well, the reality but is is that because they want more support for the children coming in, or they want less support, more resistance to the children coming in. It's a very important. Uh, I do. Uh, Alan Moore. Yeah, I think the answer on that one is they is they want more resistance to the children coming in. There's a sense that we have lost control of our own border, and as we all recall, in most of the the discussion about immigration reform, it's secure the border first, and then we can find a way to keep the 11 million people who were here prior to 2007 legal, and then. If they, if those individuals go through a screening process and, and, and can prove some things, they can get on a very long path for citizenship. But here, here's my problem. But here's my problem with this, though. But here's my problem with this: is first of all, the the concept that that even going back to the Bush administration of operational control of the border is a myth. We are never going to quote unquote have operational control of the border. We don't have a system to do it unless you build a 100-foot wall across Canada and across the Mexican border and put Coast Guard vessels at every major port of entry coming into the country. And, out, and there are people that want that. Ladders. Yeah, yes, yes, that too. Yeah. But the, but the, oh, go ahead, Alan Moore. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the definition of, of what border security is you know, is something people argue about. And, and typically they say, not that this is easy to measure, you have to keep out 90% of the people who would otherwise come. Well, we, we don't know what that number means, but we have spent billions of dollars on fences. We have spent billions of dollars on, on, on high-tech uh, surveillance equipment and... But SBI net was a disaster. Border control people. I'm just saying that, that it, it, I don't think one can say it's a meaningless concept. I think one can, one can agree that there are many difficult challenges. But what we've got on the southern border is sort of a perfect storm of there, there being some obvious holes, if you will, where coyotes can bring guys across. We've got a flood of people from three countries who've crossed the, the, the country of Mexico for some complicated reasons, some of which have to do with mistakes that this administration has made, right. and some of which have to do with U.S. law passed in good faith in 2008, which, when added, which, which said, we'll turn you away if you're from Mexico or Canada, if we stop you at the border, but if you're from another country, we think you might be a sexual trafficking victim. We're going to screen you. That piece added to the president's... The contiguous part of this, decision, right. 
decision to not send home uh, minors who were here since before 2007 sent a signal to the people of Central America, come on down, you can get in, and you will be able to stay. I can't wait to hear Dan Lipner. This is going to be awesome. Dan. Okay, a couple of different items. One that has absolutely nothing to do with border security, literally zero. These kids aren't jumping fences. They're not smuggling through holes. They're <laughs> turning themselves in. There's a reason wait, we wait, actually wait, wait, have wait, wait, them in wait, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute. They're huh? turning them in. They're turning them in. They're, turning them, the US side. they're still turning themselves in. This is, this no, is but, not but the it issue. This is a border control this issue. This is not a border control issue. Dan, these yeah. are, these are people fleeing. These are kids fleeing. Dan, so, these, these kids are coming in boxcars. They're coming in boxcars. The train of death. ABC had a great, great report about the train of death. These kids are literally riding on the roofs of boxcars through three countries in some instances, and they're getting in on these trains. Granted, they're turning themselves in. The fact that they're even getting in is a border control situation. That's not astonished at the... We're talking about enormous children here. Anger that is going on here. Let's let's point out that we're talking about kids. We are talking about kids and the extent of the ugliness that is being that is out there. That fighting against these children that are fleeing poverty and actual physical danger in their home country. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me finish my point. Let me finish my point. And the one thing I will agree on absolutely, and this was the the absolute failure and a reoccurring failure of this administration is the communications point, the ability to talk to the American public and explain what is going on with this situation. It goes further than that. Let me tell you why. Let me, let me tell you why. Number one, first of all, I want to, I want to say this publicly. I am, there are calls by members of my party to just send them home, just routinely send them home. The problem I have with that is that you have a situation where these kids are going back to, let's use El Salvador one of the most ruthless street gangs in the Northern Hemisphere is a group called MS-13. These people make the Italian mafia look like priests. They are vicious, they are ugly, they are violent, and they have no care for humanity outside of their group. They send these kids back into El Salvador, they're going to turn into gangbangers. So why not try? And there are programs in this country that would allow them to get, for example, uh, the, the high school equivalency uh, program out of Department of Education for migrant children. They have housing. They have access to schooling. They can become the productive members of the society without becoming gangbangers. That's number one. Number two, I will say this. The, the fact is that the Obama administration screwed up the communication. Here's how. When the Obama administration reinstituted the DACA, the Deferred Action uh, for, uh, for Children, that, that program, when they reannounced it, every coyote south of the border started going to everybody in Central America saying, hey, guess what? Your kid shows feet dry in the U.S. He gets to stay. He's going to get... Give me $3,000. So they're putting him into harm's way, and the Obama administration did not see this coming, botched it, and now has created its own problem. They should have seen this 
years ago. Where do these kids go instead? Let's look, let's look at it from a different perspective. Where do these kids go instead? Go ahead, Carl Tuman. I disagree with Justin on a lot of things, but this is one thing. <clears throat> you said everything that I was going to say. These kids, to send them back would be a real shunda, a real problem for those kids, and half of them wouldn't survive. And, and I feel they're here. We should, we should do what Justin said, the programs that, that can be used, and they can become productive citizens of this country. I actually agree with you, but there's still the larger problem that there, there is politics at play, and the politics at play, and this is the glaring silence from the administration where there is clear moral authority to talk about this country being the city on the hill, to be that light for the, the tired, the poor, the huddled masses yearning to breathe free. There has been nothing, literally silent on that point. Where else is the public supposed to look if the president is silent? Alan Moore. Well, the problem for the president is that this is not an example of America being the shining light on the hill and these people, kids, fleeing from a country that's a thousand miles away. This is a concerted planned effort by by their extended family, some of whom are up in America, because somebody's got to come up with the three to five to seven thousand dollars. Let me tell you how it works with refugees when people really are fleeing. And I know something about the subject. I've been on the mem- a member of the board of directors of the International Rescue Committee for more than 30 years. I've visited refugee camps all over the world. I know a little about this. Refugees flee conflict or political persecution and they get out of harm's way. Sometimes they do it inside their own country. This is what you see in Syria. Those are called internally displaced people. Sometimes they cross a border. Then they become refugees. Where do they go when they cross the border? To a point of safety. They don't travel another thousand miles. They just want safety. I would argue. Really I would argue. At risk. I would argue. Well, fine. You okay. can argue all you want. But let me finish my, my thought. I'm explaining how it works, how it works at the UN, how it works in U.S. law, how it works in the laws of most countries around the globe. They set up in a camp-type situation, or they disappear into a large city, like in, in Nairobi, um, and 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 wait and hope to get a chance to go to a third country. They do not travel a thousand miles and show up and say, we are fleeing this violence. If, they, if, 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 if we have refugee camps along the southern border of Mexico with these countries, then the U.S. is going to be all over helping set up safe, clean places for true refugees to stay. This is not that. This, is a, this, this grew out of this miscommunication as much as anything, and we've got 50,000 in one month, and, the, and, they're, and, they're, and they're still flowing in. And nobody on the whole southern border and much of the rest of the, the, the country says, oh, yeah, we'll take a few hundred, we'll take a few thousand. Um, and, and, and senior Hillary Clinton said, 
we're going to have to send most of them back. Here's, I mean, this is a fact. Here's, wh- here's where I disagree with you, using your own term of refugee. Okay. Here's where they're refugees. When they leave their country, let's use El Salvador, okay, which is under a grip of criminal enterprise unlike we've seen in Central America in decades. You go and you say, all right, we're going to go to Mexico. That should be the next safe haven according to, according to what you're saying. That should be the case, except the problem is is that MS-13 and the associated gangs – the associated gang entities in Mexico, including the drug cartels, including the street gangs of Mexico City, and the rural gangs, are all interconnected. That is not a safe haven. So the next logical point is, if I've got to be safe, I'm going to have to make that trek to get to safe haven. That's the southern border. I would say, I would say definitively that these kids are, in fact, refugees, or should at least be screened for some sort of asylum. You cannot have it both ways. Why? You can't say, on the one hand, the refugees. On the other hand, the administration helped create this problem with lack, with poor communication, making it appear as though if you can get here, you're safe. It's, it, it just doesn't work that way. I'm not saying it's safe anywhere, but what you do with – this is true in the, on the borders of Syria. This is true on the borders of any place where there's conflict that we can ever think about where you set up safe places in countries. You have international monitors. You have the United Nations involved. Agreed. Where, where you, Agreed. Where are we you, setting up one of these safe places, out. not here? We don't, we're not going to take the millions of people in the world. No, 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 no I'm, not, I'm not talking about millions of places here. in the world. I'm talking yeah. about these kids that are escaping. I, I, I'm willing to concede your point, Alan. The question is, if, if not here, then where? And there has been no voice saying, let's set up a safe haven someplace else. These kids are escaping for a reason. They're, <laughs> they're escaping because they've got family members who are providing the money to get the, the thousands of dollars to get them up here because they think they might be able to stay. That's the reason. So you're saying they're these not are, you're, you're saying are, they're not fleeing any, are, any danger in their home country? These are fourteen year olds who are making independent decisions. These are these are fourteen year olds who are following the instructions of families, some of whom are desperate. But shocking that they that families would want to go where their extended family might be, as opposed to well, or just where showing where, up where there's in a, Mexico City. Where there's a land of opportunity. It's not Mexico City. I mean what 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 historically happens with refugees, they want to, if they really are under immediate threat, they want to get to a safe place. Again, I come back to where is that safe place? It, Pick a spot on the map. Uh, I just described <laughs> one, the southern border of Mexico. And, and there, I think, there would be a lot of international willingness and support to set up places and I, there. And That's I, not what they want. No, no, but what, I, what I'm saying, what but, what, but what I'm saying to you is, is that the southern border of Mexico is not that safe place. The southern border of Mexico is a huge, massive expanse. There, it would not be that difficult to carve out places. It would not be appealing like America is. Typically, in the cases of refugees, we don't people don't leave and then get to to, to never go back. But they want to leave till things stabilize in their country, and then they can return home. If we're saying that any place that we think is going to be in turmoil or violence for the next 20 years, 
come on down, come on America, we'll, we'll take you all in. That's not what we're going to do. The whole idea of immigration reform is to gain some control, create some rules, so that people who observe the rules and wait in line can have a, can have a chance and not just let the people who cut in line for whatever reason jump ahead. Carl Tuvin. Well, that goes back to a point which has been raised um, <clears throat> almost every day since this has begun, and that is <clears throat> if the House had moved a bill for immigration reform, some of this possibly wouldn't have happened. None this, of this would have been affected by that. None of it. None of it. That, that I agree with Alan on. I, no, no, I, I do agree with Alan on this. And and but nobody's what, saying that anymore. Certainly no. not this administration. No. They are fit to be tired. What do we do? That, that, that but he, but here's, 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 here's what here's, here's I want to say this, because there's a whole other aspect on this, is, is the inability of the administration to truly get their hands wrapped around it. When we saw Secretary Jay Johnson, Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, <clears throat> along with officials from the Department of Justice, uh, Executive Office of I- Immigration Courts, when we see members of HHS, which are the ones who take into custody refugee children who arrive here, and we see all of them lined up on a dais in front of the full Senate Homeland Security Committee trying to justify a $3.7 billion supplemental budget item, and everyone, bipartisan question, what are you going to do with this money? Nobody had an answer. Bob Hines, that would shock the living bejesus out of me if I'm sitting on the Senate dais. Am I wrong? I don't know what the answer to the problem is, but I... If I were a senator, I don't know where I would go on this issue. I understand what Alan is saying, and I think he's absolutely right. The way that, that's the way the world has always worked with this stuff. But I don't know, and I'd like to, I'd like to have a timeline. I'd like to know when these coyotes started bringing these young people in. How long ago was it? Because I didn't see a whole lot of reportage about this. Let's say eight months ago, ten, uh, ten months ago, six months ago even. I'm not, but what I don't understand is how the administration did not respond quickly when they realized what was happening, which they clearly did not do. I can tell you from talking to sources that I have inside the Border Patrol and DHS, they've known that this was going to be a possibility the day the president announced DACA. DACA I believe, is a good program. That's going to tick off a lot of people in my party. You know what? Call me a rhino. I don't care. DACA is a good program. What they didn't do is go on an international marketing effort saying, make no mistake about it, kids. This is not a feet wet, feet dry situation. Whereas if you get feet dry on American soil, we welcome you with open arms. This is a situation, if you're already here, then we'll defer action. This is not the golden ticket. That's where the administration messed up on it. Um, well, that's a damn big mess. It is a big Of course it's yeah. a big mess. Yeah. But, the, but the reality still dictates, and this is, and this is where I differ from Alan, is knowing what I know about the, the, the – the kids that are coming out of El Salvador, knowing the current political situation, knowing the influence 
of the criminal enterprises in these countries and how they've expanded throughout northern Latin America and Latin, northern Central America, to say that we can stop them at the Mexican border, the infiltration of these gangs into the federales, into the provincial police organizations, into the central government of Mexico, has been widely documented. The drug cartels will... will will exploit these kids if they have the opportunity. That is why I say, without fail, these are refugees, and the only way they're going to find safe haven is to get out of Latin America right now. Well, you're, I mean, it, by, by your definition, then everybody from Mexico South is a refugee. If, if, they can't, if there's no safe place in Mexico, then there's no safe place for Mexicans in Mexico. And then we haven't even talked about going south. So we haven't talked about Nicaragua yet. I agree. I agree. But, I agree. But, but, but all I'm trying to say is we cannot just and will not open our door to anybody from a, a crime-ridden or drug-ravaged community or country from here to, <laughs> Tierra, to Argentina, del Tierra del Fuego and say, <laughs> Come on down. We're here waiting for you. We will welcome you. We will, we, will, we will clothe you and house you and give you health clearance and educate you. And if, I think you should suggest you should take a look at, at what some of the, the, the historical, historically democratic constituents in different parts of the country are saying. How dare you spend this kind of money for these foreigners who aren't welcome here and who don't belong here and deny us uh, meeting all of our needs. I mean, this is, this is a huge political dilemma for, uh, for this administration and for Republicans as well. All right. Well, we're going to keep an eye on this. We're going to continue this discussion in future programs because this is a situation not going away. It'll be interesting to see what the Congress does with the supplemental budget, and if DHS can get their act together, it's going to be amazing. Wait, the House does something? No, stop. Go away. Uh, when we come back, Peter Finn from the Washington Post, author of The Javago Affair, is going to talk about his book. This is a fascinating story about using literature and the Cold War and propaganda. Oh, it's a great story. I can't wait. Uh, he's going to be on here in the 5 o'clock hour. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., we will be back in three minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on yeah, Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor, hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelly's Back Room that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland Scotches, they've got Isla Sky Scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. 
Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays. Live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. Joining us now, live from Washington, he is Washington Post Peter Finn, who is also the author of a really fascinating book called The Zhivago Affair. Peter, how are you doing? Good. How are you? Great to be with Thanks. you. Thanks for joining us. Hey, uh, Peter, we, we, we saw the articles back in April uh, leading up to the release of the book, and then the book has gotten some great reviews that I've seen. Uh, it, it's a fascinating story of literature, a Russian poet, uh, romance, ideology, and propaganda and the CIA. Give us a little bit of background on how you came up with the idea and, and why Dr. Zhivago. Well, I came across the story when I was a correspondent in Moscow for the Washington Post, and uh, a Russian writer gave a, a lecture in the city claiming that the CIA won the Nobel Prize in literature for Pasternak. That proved to be incorrect, but it got me interested in the subject. I began to read about Pasternak and Dr. Shivago. He spent 10 years writing this. You know, it's a novel 
about the doctor poet Yuri Shivago, his art, his loves, his losses in the decades surrounding the 1917 revolution. Uh, and in it is some criticism of all that flowed from the revolution. And when literary bureaucrats in Moscow read it, um, you know, they found it unacceptable because um, it didn't, you know, hew to the literary norms of Soviet Russia. So he gave it to a young Italian who took the book uh, out of the Soviet Union, and it was first published in Italy in translation in November 1957, then subsequently in a number of other Western countries, but not in Russian. And that's when the CIA got involved, and they decided uh, that they would print a Russian edition to smuggle back into the Soviet Union so people there could read the novel. So, Peter, you know, when when we first heard about the, the whole Zhivago affair, uh, you know, the, the book was widely acclaimed as a great piece of literature. However, uh, President Eisenhower and his operations coordinating board, were they the key factors that, that kind of touched off the entire effort to get this to the other side of the Iron Curtain? No, I think it was the Soviet-Russia division within CIA, which was a division with, you know, specialists in Russia. Uh, they got a copy of the manuscript on film from British intelligence. When people read it, and they were already reading some of the reaction to it in Europe, they were hugely enthusiastic and believed that this was the kind of book um, that they wanted to print and smuggle back in. And when they were contemplating this in early 1958... The CIA was al had already begun what became known as the Books Program, and that was a program to get, secure the copyrights, print, publish, and smuggle Western books, Russian books that were not available in the Soviet Union, books about all kinds of subjects from art history to economics to history, to smuggle all of these books into the Soviet Union. Dr. Shivago was one of the early efforts at this, and one of the most important because of the significance of this novel. But, you know, when we, when we look at the background on this, uh, you came across a CIA, a CIA memo which went out to all the branch chiefs that said that this book has great propaganda value. What did, what did the CIA see in the propaganda value of Dr. Zhivago versus another Soviet-printed uh, book? Well, I think two things. One, um, Dr. Zhivago was, unlike any book that had previously come out of Soviet, the Soviet Union, Soviet books, Soviet literature were written in praise of the Soviet experiment. Dr. Zhivago was critical of that experiment. So in that sense, it was you know, completely original and startling to people who read it in the West that this book could have emerged from the Soviet Union. Secondly, the Soviet Union had banned the book, so there was great propaganda value in highlighting that fact and getting the book back in to the Soviet Union, so people there would wonder, why do we have to get these underground copies? Um, why is our own government banning this? So they, they were two motivations there. Now, Pasternak, when he was originally, I guess, prohibited from publishing this book, it, once the book went into publication and they just did, how long did it take the, the uh, Soviet regime to discover that this banned book by uh, Pasternak was in fact in circulation in Russia? 
Oh, almost immediately. I mean, they knew from almost from the moment he gave the book over to that young Italian who took it out that the book was out and, and the book was in the West. They made great efforts to try and get the manuscript back from Italy, pressuring both Pasternak and the Italian publisher, who happened to be a very prominent Italian communist. But he broke with the Italian Communist Party over this issue and went forward with publication. When they printed the book themselves, um, they handed it out at the Brussels World's Fair, and people immediately knew that this edition was out there and people were attempting to bring it back in. So I would say the Soviet authorities knew about this from the beginning. The KGB... But they knew this throughout the course of the Cold War. They were constantly trying to stop um, these books from getting in, with some success and, you know, uh, a lot of failures because these books did get in. People did pass them hand to hand. Did uh, Peter? Did did the KGB or the Kremlin? Did they feel that they had failed as an internal security operation in keeping the book out? I mean, was this a humiliating experience for the Kremlin? Uh, yes, but not because they failed to keep it out. I think they they came to believe that they lost the propaganda war over this book and that they might have been much better off if they had not made such an issue out of it, if they had not publicized their hostility to it so much, if they had not forced Pasternak, for instance, to renounce the Nobel Prize, if they had not humiliated and vilified him in their own media, and that if they had simply had a small print run of this book, paid no attention to it, and simply said to people in the West, what are you talking about? Yes, we've published this book. Uh, this would have passed off with much less attention. But they did everything um, in their power, even though it wasn't their intention, uh, to make this book a global sensation. Alan Moore, question for Peter Finn. No, I, 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 that is exactly the question I, I had, whether, whether there, was, <laughs> there was any remorse uh, on reflection about uh, this, this tactic to try to stop uh, a, a book. It was probably, were there any, any, uh, any books anywhere in the world before that where they might have learned <laughs> that if you try to stop it, you're likely to make it into a bigger deal than, uh, than a lesser deal? I guess that's one question. And the other question is, is whether you think that since then the uh, the Soviets then or the Russians later or anybody else has realized, gosh, remember what happened with Zhivago. Don't try to stop this, or we're going to create a martyr, if you will, in a in a in a writer, or call too much attention to something controversial. And the last thing we want to do is give it give it a bigger life than it otherwise might have. Well, I think even Pasternak himself told them, or um, told the authorities that you know you would be much better off to publish even an abridged version of this book. But you know its contents were so anathema to them they couldn't bring themselves to do it. I do think that they did learn a lesson from this, and the future, um, with the possible exception of Solzhenitsyn, but with other writers, they made much less of an issue out of books than they had over the Shivago affair. And in fact, even if you take look at the Soviet leader at the time, Khrushchev, he eventually, in retirement, after he was forced from power, came to read Dr. Shivago, something he didn't do at the time. He, he was handed a bunch of quotations from his underlings who 
said, look at the awful stuff that's in this novel. But when he did actually read the book in full, he said to himself and he said in his memoirs, you know, why did we, why did I allow this to happen? We should never have done this. We should have just allowed this book to be published. What, what were some of the, the, the more problematic at the time uh, quotes that were in this book? What would have been on, on, the, on the list of, of items that, that went to Khrushchev back in the day when they were deciding to try to stop it? Um, I think, you know, where Yuri Shivago himself is reflecting on uh, the recent past, reflecting on the revolution, the famine, and the civil war, and he begins to describe the Bolsheviks as fanatics and people who, you know, all they can do, that they act like a machine that grinds up people, but they cannot govern. Um, so it's sentiments like that that they found completely unacceptable. And it has to be said, you know, the book is not full of these kind of sentiments. Pasternak did not believe this was a particularly political book. And these sentiments are expressed here and there, but much of the rest of the book um, is not overtly political in that way. But any sentiment along these lines that failed to accept the October Revolution and everything that flowed from it, um, they couldn't countenance publishing that kind of book. Uh, Peter, how much, how much did the CIA actually put forth money-wise to get this operation and get the book published in Russian? Well, I, I don't have an exact figure, and I imagine it was modest. I mean, they did two printings. The first printing was a hardback, their experience, and it was a small print run of about 1,100 copies that were handed out at the Brussels World's Fair in September 1958. The lesson they learned from that was that the book as a hardback was too big, too bulky, uh, even though it was a very handsome book, to be easily smuggled. So the following year, they printed about 9,000 copies of a miniature paperback book on Bible stock paper in one and two volumes, which people could literally hold in their hand, the palm of their hand, and stuff in their pockets. Um, so I would say a quite modest amount, but the book program itself, they spent millions of dollars a year on that over the course of the Cold War. And over those decades, they probably printed... 10 million books and journals um, for circulation in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. So it was, you know, um, it was not a small amount of money. So, okay. Alan Moore, You're, you described those two volumes. Uh, have, you, have you held those volumes? Are they famous, rare books, and what are they worth? Uh, well, I have a miniature, um, the one printed in 1959, and my co-author, Petra Cuvet, has a copy of the hardback which was published in the Netherlands and um, she's Dutch and she got it actually as a gift from a Dutch intelligence officer who worked that agency worked with the CIA to get this printing done I I, I imagine they're worth a few dollars I haven't priced them out uh -huh. it's just nice to have one. Oh, it must must be fabulous hey, uh, Peter obviously uh, director Dulles the director of central intelligence back in the day uh, probably looked at this and then the explosion of the circulation after the youth festival. How, how much this spark a more cultural aspect in the CIA versus the traditional clandestine operations, or did it have an effect? 
Well, I think the cultural aspect um, of the Cold War perhaps became more important after the Hungarian Revolution, and there was some realization within CIA that they were in a very long game, that uh, communism in Eastern Europe was not going to be turned back. I mean, this was just one, uh, culture was just one weapon in their arsenal, if you like, but it was an important one, and um, if you include everything they were doing, not just books, but Radio Liberty, Radio Free Europe, um, all the cultural activities they were underwriting in Western Europe to shore up support for the U.S. I mean, it, it was a major effort over the course of the Cold War. Uh, Peter, when, uh, when we look at this today, you obviously had some access with CIA officials and the CIA. Was, was the organization cooperative in your research for the book? Yes. I mean, um, you know, it, was, it took a while. I, when I came back from Moscow in 2008, I approached the agency about the possibility of uh, securing documents from them on what they had or had not done. Their first response was no, not interested. But then I spoke to retired people in D.C. who then went and spoke to others inside the agency. Gradually, the Historians within the Historical Records Division became interested and found what material ha they had. Um, they oversaw whatever internal process there was to release these documents, and I eventually got them in 2012. Oh, so wow. it was, you know, three-year process. Oh, wow. When, in the aftermath, I mean, obviously it turned into a, a huge motion picture, Obviously, did that motion picture, was there any attempt to bring the movie into the Cold War aspect, get that translated into Soviet? Well, the movie was banned in um, the Soviet Union, and like the book, was not uh, available for uh, Soviet citizens to see or like the book to read until Gorbachev came to power. Um, so, And the movie is a much harder thing to smuggle, obviously, than a book, because you have to have a place to show it. Now, the American embassy in Moscow did have some private screenings of Dr. Zhivago, the movie, when it came out, after it came out in 1965, but that was really the extent of it. People did not see the movie. Do, do Russians today embrace Dr. Zhivago as a piece of literature, or is there still a faction of Russians that look at it as it was an undermining of our government at the time is set off by the capitalist United States. No, I, I, I don't think so. I think that if you walk into any bookstore in, in Moscow or St. Petersburg, you'll, you'll see it there on the shelf. Uh, I think people read it less now than they did in the past. Um, you know, it's not generally part of the curriculum in Russian schools, even though uh, other writers like Tolstoy and others are. Um, so maybe it's not as popular, particularly among younger and readers, than it might have been in the past. Obviously, there was a huge interest in reading it when it was forbidden. Like anything that's forbidden, people want it. Now that they can read anything they want, pretty much in terms of literature, there's less interest. And the Russian state does not take a huge interest in literature anymore. That's not where their um, internal control or their interests in internal control lie. Carl Tuvin, question for Peter Fenn. Peter, uh, with, with all the uh, books being printed 
<clears throat> and sold uh, worldwide. Did uh, Pasternak receive any uh, royalties or any uh, compensation for all the books that were printed at that time? Well, that, that was a hugely complicated issue, which we describe in the book. So he had no direct access to the money, and there were huge sums of money. By one year after, there must have been a million dollars in Swiss bank accounts that his publisher had put there for him. Um, he needed the money because he was essentially um, no longer getting work internally, so his publisher and other friends in the West started to smuggle money in, uh, in suitcases. This was a highly risky venture. Pasternak, unfortunately, died 18 months after the whole Nobel controversy in '58. but after his death, his mistress um, was accused of illegal currency trading and uh, convicted and sentenced to... Um, eight years in prison and sent off to the camps. Uh, this is a woman who, when he was writing the book, was also sent to the camps for his, her association with him. Uh, Pasternak, among other things, had a very uh, or a somewhat complicated private life with uh, essentially two families, his, his wife and, and uh, children and his mistress and her children. Did um, and, and, and final question for you here, uh, Peter, we know you're busy. Uh, did did Pasternak, before he died, realize the effect and the, the popularity of the book globally? Uh, yes, he, able he did. To sense that? Yes, he did, and he was enormously gratified by that. And he was, you know, incredibly happy, not only at the global popularity, but at winning the Nobel Prize, because he viewed this novel as his final testament, as the artistic achievement of a long, long life. Um, of writing. I mean, prior to writing this novel, he was regarded as one of the, the great Russian poets. Um, but he, he saw this novel, he saw Dr. Zhivago as his, um, as he, at one point he called it his final happiness and madness. Wow. Uh, Peter Friend, obviously available in hardback, uh, in brick and mortar stores, and available on Amazon? Correct. Fantastic. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. Alan Moore's got one last question for you. No, no, no. I'm thinking about your, your, your initial comment when you said, when, when there was the question, gee, did the CIA uh, bring him the Nobel Prize? It sounds to me like the uh, Russian government brought him the Nobel Prize, <laughs> and then the CIA was simply a, a, a foot soldier in that process. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Um, <laughs> Yeah, the Nobel Prize, I mean, I can answer that briefly. Um, you know, he had been nominated for the Nobel Prize several times before he, Dr. Shivago was ever known about as a poet. I think uh, the arrival, the appearance of Dr. Shivago and the reaction of people within the Swedish Academy to it made him a shoe-in for the award in 1958. Wow, okay. Fascinating book, Peter. Ben reporter for the Washington Post, author of The Zhivago Affair. Peter, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be with us here on Backroom Politics. No, thank you. I appreciate it. Not a problem. Hey, when we come back, we're going to have a discussion on, believe it or not, Bob, Al, your sweet spot, we're going to talk about redistricting, the Texas problem and the possible Yay. Florida problem. When we come back on Backroom Politics, we'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us.
Everybody knows Shelly's Back Room for its corporate events, its happy hours, its famous campfire wings and spurt cigars and drinks. But what you didn't know is that Shelly's is open during the weekend, too. In fact, Shelly's Back Room on the weekends even has a non-smoking section. You can bring your family, your kids, enjoy the same campfire wings and same glorious food that you enjoy during the week, but without the famous Shelly's Cigar environment. Also during the weekend, it's football season. That means a lot of the regulars come down and enjoy their drinks and their favorite cigars, all while watching their favorite local teams, whether it's the Ravens, the Redskins, on several HD screens throughout the place. So remember, Shelly's Back Room. It's not just for happy hours anymore. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Official sponsor of Backroom Politics. On the elevation, on the shelf, they misbehaving, saving my love for you and you, especially you. Yeah. I know for certain the one I love. I'm through with flirting as you that I'm thinking of. Ain't misbehaving, saving all my love for you. Like that Horner in a corner, don't go nowhere. Here live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Hey, we're going to talk about a subject that's near and dear to Congressman Allen, Bob Hines' heart. We're going to talk about, hold yourselves here, kids. We're talking redistricting. And has now gotten back into the headlines, if you have not been watching... There is a redistricting problem down in, uh, down in Texas. The problem is that apparently uh, the Supreme Court and several other courts below them have said that, wait a minute, the recent 2010 redistricting was not only unconstitutional, but just a blatant, blatant effort in gerrymandering. So the question is coming up now then. There are other states now that are now calling into question, one of them being possibly Florida. And Florida's redistricting problems. Dan Lipner, you want to add to this? Well, it, well, in Florida's case, I can't speak to Texas. In Florida's case, it's actually it's the state courts that have said the redistricting yep. was, was violated the state's constitution. The state Supreme Court. I'm right. sorry. I, I, should, I should qualify that. That, that, is, that is correct. Also, now, also state law. Right. That's correct. Correct. But but this this brings up a good question. Though. I mean, you know, you now have Texas. You now have the possibility that Florida's redistricting efforts after the 2010 census could be called unconstitutional. If that is the case, 
Bob Hines, does this become a wake-up call to the general electorate saying, hey, wait a minute, as boring as redistricting sounds, our voices really aren't getting heard? Should this wake up the electorate and saying, look, we've got to take more of an interest in this? Well, it would be nice to believe it, but I don't think that's necessarily true. But the way we redistrict, and uh, both parties are equal opportunity offenders. The way we do redistricting right now is, is uh, I think if the founding fathers were to see how it's hap- what's going on today, they'd probably say, my God, you've got to fix something. Simple as that. You've got to fix something. There's a number of ways you could do it, but you've got to do something about it. Dan Lipner. Well, not only that, let's throw one number out there. The number is 470,000 votes uh, last election. That's how many more votes... This is just for the House, mind you. Democrats got, then Republicans, yet Democrats are in the minority in the House of Representatives. Taking that number into account, the fact that, yeah, both parties are are offenders, equal offenders, and now with modern technology, uh, I, I would push back on. The fact that you have districts that defy logic, my personal favorite, I think the district has since been changed, but once Texas had a district that was only contiguous because of a highway overpass and underpass that kept it actually contiguous. This is the only thing that the court has said consistently. There's a great one in Maryland that goes from the West Virginia border to the uh, Eastern, Shore. Bank, Eastern Shore. That's, yeah. that's a really good what, what, gerrymandering. Now, now, by the way, <laughs> I, I got a Democrat. Wait, wait, wait a minute. They're equal opportunity offenders, it period. Goes, it goes from Western Maryland into Montgomery County where they, they took sections of Montgomery yeah. County, which are heavily Democratic, to make that a Democratic district. You know, but it didn't go all the way to the Eastern Shore. Might as well have. Jeez. So in, in an effort to wake up Alan Moore, Alan Moore, because he's yawning already on this subject. I mean, we can't always be interesting, but it's politically. Uh, all right, I'll go to Congressman Al. Congressman Al, you had a comment. Yeah, I, I just want to give Alan time to go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I think the problem with a number of, uh, of important revisions or reforms, if you will, uh, have not done well because they have not been sold well. Uh, a, a bunch of college professors and uh, and, and mugwumps like uh, Bob and I uh, talk about this in, in almost classic political science terms, and the public, one, isn't interested in that, and two, it just sounds like something else that the, that the politicians are bitching about, and why should I be interested? But Carl Tubin from... Oh, I'm sorry. Wait, wait, wait a minute. That was my preamble. <laughs> yeah. Prelude. Oh, I didn't know there was more. up. You let, you, let, you let him have prelude. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. I'm with Al here. Yeah. His are interesting. Wow. Well. Or just lewd. <laughs> well... Do I leave on this point? <laughs> no, deep, deeply we're still alive, Al. Go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. It seems to me that what people don't understand is that what what the current uh, process of, of redistricting does is it allows the Congress people, the politicians, to choose their constituency 
when it should be the other way around, the constituency chooses the politician. That, I think, could get through to the public uh, along with a bunch of other stuff. Dan Lipner. I, so, uh, in, uh, two years ago, I was in Ohio that also was suffering from the redistricting fight. And the, in an attempt to fight the, the re-redistricting, uh, the Democratic Party proposed a, a novel solution that said, uh, depending on the voter registration of the state, is how they should then proceed to draw the lines that make up districts in order to get the proper distribution between Democrats and Republicans. I immediately uh, chimed in that this is also incorrect. The actual correct answer is something plain as day on the map. Marcy Kaptur, the longest, the 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 dean of the women in the House of Representatives. Um, her district, she's represented Toledo, Ohio, for close to 30 years now. Um, her district now extends from Toledo to Cleveland. And the correct argument, at least in my mind, is not the choosing the voters or anything else. It's actually letting the communities be defined. And as I proposed to the Democratic Party and in Ohio, that it should be a regionalism issue, that the folks in Toledo are not part of Cleveland, and Cleveland sure as hell is not part of Toledo. Let those folks identify themselves and let the district shape up around that identity. Congressman Al. I agree with that. What I am suggesting is you need, you need something like a slogan, you need something to get their attention. And that then becomes the argument that makes sense. The mud hens versus the Indians. Let's go with that. And, 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 and it's an argument that I think can break through the malaise that, uh, that exists on the issue. If you can get their attention on the fact that they're being used but, by, the, by the politicians. By the politicians. And then your argument, and there are a number of others that I think can be made logically to a group once you've got them listening. But you've got to get them listening before they'll pay any attention. Alan, you still awake? I'm, I'm drowsy here. Okay. I, 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 Carl, right. Carl, let's, Carl, let's, let's leave I, him left. Uh, oh, we'll let him go to sleep. We'll no, let him go to sleep. I'm intrigued with the, the notion that this could be somehow a popular movement, most people don't even, most people don't even don't know, who, know who their representative is. Um, the, these off-year elections have very low turnouts. It's, you're going to have to get people to care about elections before you're going to then get them to, to care about uh, redistricting. In, in many cases, the, the redistricting works where both parties scratch each other's back to have safe seats in both cases. Um, it, it, it is not to say that the party in power doesn't have the power typically to, to make the hard marginal choices and come out with, with a majority. And as Dan uh, accurately points out, you, you, if, you, if you aggregate everything at the end, then you say, gosh, is that really a good system? The only way, though, to get around this is to, is to get state-by-state state buy-in to the creation of an independent group. Occasionally that happens. It happened in California. Um, and there's a few other – I don't know if there's any other states where there's actually a commission that is charged with dr drawing these – 
these population Iowa. focus. Iowa. 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 So, it, you know, the states have to decide, and well, Washington. And, yeah. and I don't, I don't see this movement kind of evolving. And I wanted to say one other thing about the, the Florida Supreme Court case. There's 27 districts in Florida. The, 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 the state Supreme Court said two of them are, are bad. Yeah. And, the, and now the big question is... But that is, redraws the entire map. Right. Well, if, if you have to, but, but then the question is, what do we do for 2014? Because every, they're about to send out absentee ballots. Right. So, so the losers in that case said, God forbid you should say we have to do something before 2014 because we... We, uh, We've already got everything we, done. We We're ready to go. Complicated stuff. We don't, we don't have time. But, but okay. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Carl Tubin. The interesting thing is in the Florida situation, where they said, you know, Democrats had more votes for president as Republicans and this, that, and the other. And then they said, well, the whole thing should be redone, but there's not, there's not enough time between now and the November election to do it. And Corinne Brown... Uh, Brown says, "Don't do that. My district's fine." <laughs> yeah. but I was going to say, "Have you seen Corinne Brown's district?" Yes. Yeah. It, look, it looks like a bowl constrictor coming out of the Everglades. It's amazing. Well, and that's one of the things we can't really overlook. I mean, there's Democrat and Republican, but then there's also the, the protected class that actually needs to be paid attention to. Racial politics does play a role in that. So, majority minority districts do need to be. Gerrymandering used to be about making sure minority voters could not actually have a real voice in politics. Well, However, it used that to has be now for changed. A while. It started with Elbridge Gerry, who uh, did it not for those reasons at all, but right. for the standard reasons of uh, making. Wanted to make sure he part. was still in office. I mean, yeah. I mean, this is look. Redistricting is no more than politicians ganging up. When you put it into legislative hands, it is no more than politicians talking to other politicians, saying, "Hey, how do we remain in office? You scratch my back, I scratch yours." It has become a little cabal in many states, particularly in your larger population states, i.e., Texas and Florida. We had a a Senate. Majority leader, a Democrat in Washington State, who was so fixated on the idea that if he only studied this hard enough, he could get every every legislative <laughs> district to be Democratic, until some of his some of his friends were thinking that he was going slightly mad. <laughs> he would hold up in an office for days, letting the Senate run itself. He was the majority leader, uh, while he was searching for this magical theory. Well, look, let me tell you, no matter how you do redistricting, you're going to get more Republicans out of Texas and more Democrats out of Boston, and we're not trying to make things perfect. But I come back to the fact you've got to have a, a something that will draw their attention to it, and that is that these Crooked politicians have set it up so that they will choose whether true. you vote for Dan Lipner. True, but there's more to this. Dan Lipner. There's more to this because the, the extremes that the House has turned into, and hell, Eric Cantor was a victim of this, that 
by drawing these districts, the true losers are the majority of the American public, meaning the moderates, the people in between that actually want problems solved. When you draw these lines, that it becomes a, a safe partisan district. And as we know, almost universally, if not absolutely universally nationwide, the people who vote in primaries are the extremes of either party. So if those are the people choosing the members, and Eric Cantor, a shock to everyone, was taken out by the extremes of his own party because of that redistricting, because they painted a bit more of the radical right into his district, lo and behold, he ran into trouble. And this is, it's a larger issue than just the, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. The, the larger population now produces something that is no longer a functioning government. And, we, and that's where we need to be paying attention. I, I, and, I Congressman ab- and I absolutely agree with you when you want to get down a little bit into the weeds of the issue. But that's where you begin to glaze the eyes over of the average voter, although I hate... Average voters like Alan, apparently. I hate to think of Alan as an average voter, but (laughs) but, but that's I'm definitely above average. (laughs) And humble, too. I need to believe that. And humble, too. Carl Tubin. The one thing I didn't like about the commission in California is the way they cut the districts, and all of a sudden you had... Berman running against Sherman, uh, and, and, and which was which was one of two good people were going to be knocked out, and I think that that is not right. But well, you, no, got, no, you can't have a both ways. The California plan is actually the solution. Hey, yeah. The California plan is actually the solution because it produced a situation where even barring the the insanity of the lines being drawn, which actually California no longer has. But if every state had to have a general election with either the top two Republicans or top two Democrats running against each other, I mean, Louisiana has a similar system, by the way, you end up still yeah, having... we see how effective that is. So does Washington State. And it's a stupid system. What, with a general election, you can any, have two Democrats or two Republicans running against each other? Any decides they're going to take anything out of Louisiana and make it their policy. <laughs> California, California has a functioning government for the first time at least in 20 years. Well, that, that's arbitrary. <laughs> Jerry Brown hasn't... Jerry Brown hasn't functioned for decades. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. He's gotten California out of a lot of trouble. Okay, I'm sorry. Bob Hines. To me, what I'd like to see, what I would like to see is the way Iowa does it. They've got... It's a square state with four districts. They have a commission (laughs) made up of former governors, former Supreme Court judges, and a surveyor. <laughs> yeah, and, a surveyor. and what they do is they, they draw compact and contiguous districts. They put communities It's a together. square state, Bob. But well, so you can make a square state, but you can still have, you can carve out six. With four areas. congressmen? How? You basically cut it up like a like a like a Sicilian pizza. Yeah. One line up, one line across. Okay. When they had five, it was a little bit more complicated. Yeah. But I declare, Justin, that 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 you like 
gerrymandering. Yes, with glare. No, 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 no. I'm not saying the gerrymandering. It's absolutely clear. Yes, it's I, you said. Oh, oh, now you're taking what I say out of context. No, we're, we, we're taking you what take you said. What, what you said and taking it back to you. What the? Doesn't sound so good, does it? Yeah. <laughs> By the way, the breaking news coming out of CNN right now. CNN is reporting that uh, the Israeli security cabinet is in emergency meetings. It appears that the ceasefire has not taken hold. Uh, apparently, according to CNN and according to BBC, several rockets have been launched into Israel just within the past couple of hours. Uh, the Iron Dome system has been activated and several anti-missile defense rockets have been fired. Uh, CNN is broadcasting a picture of these rockets actually going after targets. So this continues to de-escalate into an absolute quagmire. It's a way of you getting out and discussing what we were discussing. Just, re- <laughs> just, report, just doing my journalistic duty, Alex. Just calling Jerry. Just, yeah. <laughs> Jerry has no manners. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. At least you've called me something close to my name today. What I would, Bob. Like, to, what I would like to see in every state is the same kind of a commission that Iowa has, where Supreme Court former retired justice and former governors, you know, five or six people, do the work, and they, comp- they draw a compact and contiguous districts, which puts communities together, which means you've got from everybody from way up here to way down here because they all live in the same neighborhoods. Let's stay together. And that way, you're going to have the best possible choices because you're not going to have the Tea Party is on one side and the crazy libs on the other side. But I want to I want to see a situation where, as much as possible, we get a a, a redistricting setup which the politicians cannot negotiate. But Bob, doesn't that bring into play? Then you then go out of the hands of the legislature; those Good. elected. But doesn't that look good? What a great idea! But doesn't the legislature doesn't make a deal with the congressional delegation? But wait a minute, does it not bring into play the old political boss system, the old Tammany Hall regimes? Not at all. Why? There's an important important difference. Whether or not you're talking about somebody fudging the lie at the number of blocks versus a few hundred miles. There is a very distinct difference. There's always going to be a little mucking around with it. Let's just concede that point. But when you have something that draws a one-mile-wide line, a hundred miles to link communities that have nothing to do with each other versus moving a line a few blocks because you think there are a few more voters of yours versus the other guy, you're not going to get rid of that. But you can get rid of – you at least make it compact. So at least makes sense. But I'm well, going to ask exactly what, we're, what Al and I have been talking about. Right, but what, but what I want to do is... I want the ask, only way to do that is take it out of the hands of the state legislatures doing deals with the congressional delegation, which is exactly what we have today. Hey, Bob, my hand's raised. So, <laughs> well, uh, no, I was talking. Oh, oh excuse me. <laughs> excuse me. Call to him from... Is somebody talking? Yeah. <laughs> Carl Tubin, from a Democratic or Republican chair or executive director, this obviously puts the state parties in an awkward position, whereas your job as an executive director or, or a party chair in these states is to do what you can to get your party elected at the same time 
you do want to have congressional districts that aren't going to be disqualified by constitutional rule. Can the state parties find a balance in those two missions no, where they no, can be compatible? No, there, it would be very, no very hard to. I mean, you know, <clears throat> this thing with Western Maryland, you know, we have a congressman that lives in Montgomery County. His, his um, district, as I said before, was made in Montgomery County to have enough votes to counter Western Maryland. <clears throat> Western Maryland should have a congressman of their own and most likely be Republican as it was prior. Only a few times has that, has that or, district or been. Or a very conservative Democrat right. as with Beverly Byron. Well, Beverly Byron, but you also had Foley uh, years ago. Um, I can't think of his first name, but uh, he was a liberal Democrat and happened to be able to win that district. Kind of like Chris Christie in New Jersey, ring governor. <laughs> Oh, come on, that was cute. And how really? Is that the and, and, and yet that, that drew no ire from Alan Moore. Alan is still resting. <laughs> oh, okay, that's true. That's true. He made it over the bridge. That's why he did That's true. Hey, final question on this. Uh, these are obviously situations that are going to be continuously challenged. At what point does the Supreme Court get involved and just mandate down, look, this... No, no, no. no. Will they? This is, not, this is not a... The court should not do this. The lead, what we it's see, on track too. Well, you probably will. No, I want. What no, I want to Hold on, hold on, hold on. Alan Moore has got in, in, a fact. No, no, no. Let's remember that one of the things that started this was a Supreme Court decision from the 1950s that required one man, one person, one vote. So you had to create districts of a more or less equal population. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just reminding everybody that before that decision was made, we had many states who had districts that were, that, that were not dissimilar from the, the difference between the Senate and the House. They were geographic regions, not based on population. That was overturned in the 50s, and ever since then, this, the machinations have at least required that, that the... Uh, districts be of approximately equal size at the time the decisions are made. What we have to read for that was sold. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on, Dan Lipner. Well, again, I, I, we glossed over this, but again, the reason for the court even took the case is because of the protected class, the, 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 the racial politics at play. It's all yeah. sort of in the South. The fact that it's migrated nationwide is both well, a curse and a blessing. The reality but, today is we have in, in the House of 435 members. We have probably about 360 districts that are drawn on a 75-25 basis. Our associate producer, Eric Thomas, is like right now completely glazed eyes over. He's completely... Yeah. Well, then he... Shocking. Uh, well, shocking. <laughs> well, then he is like most of the citizens in the United States who don't understand how serious this problem can be. You mean you, you, mean you want the American electorate to take personal responsibility for the way that they're governed? It would be nice if at least they paid attention to the fact as, that it's all screwed up today. You know what? I want a pink unicorn, too. As, as, as Thomas Jefferson said, and as, 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 as reaching out to our Tea Party fans, the, the, most, the most dangerous special democracy is an unenlightened public. You're talking about an electorate, a libertarian party that has embraced the Lego movie as a mantra for libertarianism. Are you kidding me? 
Good God. Exactly. Exactly. With that, we've got 10 minutes left in the show. It is time for my favorite part of the show. It's time for Tell Me a Story. We talk about news, innuendo, rumors going around the beltways. Once in a while, we'll scoop them. But, Congressman, no, you, you're not ready yet. Bob. I'm ready. You are. I'm ready. Congressman Al, tell me a story. The story is that if we can change the approach to selling redistricting, from all of the technical stuff that, that everybody around this table understands and probably our wives and families do not, uh, to explain to them how it is this current system hurts them by putting those nasty politicians in charge of choosing them as constituents rather than letting the constituents choose the member. If we did that, we would be able to start something that would grow. Interesting. <laughs> wow. He's a former congressman, Alan. Bob Hines, tell me a story. The primary season is just about over, I think it is. And uh, as a Republican, I am very pleased. Mississippi's still going on, by the way. Just a little bit, not much. Wait, Bob Hines. The reality is, it's most of it's most of it's passed now, and I'm very pleased with the way that the uh, uh, the, the the Tea Party has been put in place and pushed off to the side of it, because I think it's important that we don't have uh, people who are so rigid that they are unable to negotiate. And I think it's going to be a better Congress the next time around because they're going to be fewer Tea Party types. And the stronger the Republican Party can be, and so that it can be as good With more Tea Party people? Less Tea Party people. Okay, just making That's sure. That's what we need. Okay. The fewer the better. And Happy we... days are here again. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, Carl Tubin. Carl Tubin, is, is this story modern day? Yes. Okay. Yes. Within within the past two years. From page one of yesterday's newspaper. Hey! Oh, my God. Tell some things. I was going to throw in a no, no, no. story, but I'm not going to do that. Senator uh, <laughs> um, Baggage has... has um, from Alaska. From Alaska, has now campaigning on the fact that he is a dagger. And he has a what? Nagger. Oh, oh, Jesus. <laughs> I, oh, my God. N-A-G-G-E-R. There. Right. I thought he was a Democrat. We didn't even party. The new N-word. Okay. He has been running for election in Alaska uh, for the fact that he has nagged the President of the United States uh, like a thorn in his posterior. According from the, the uh, Post, he says that uh, he has access to Badger the administration and he has gotten things like uh, more permits for oil and, and gas drilling for Alaska. And as he goes throughout the state, he talks about uh, what he's done. He, there was a nomination for a four-star general, and he held that nomination back 
until he convinced the the uh, administration's Department of Defense to keep uh, F-47s in Alaska and not move them to someplace else. Okay. And he also did the same thing about a hospital in Alaska where he he, he badgered the administration. They gave the money for Alaska, and he let a bill go through. Okay, I think I got what you said, but can you tell me again, because I didn't hear a thing you said. <laughs> more. Tell me the story. All right, so, so Harry Reid. Oh, oh, my God, it's a Harry Reid story. Continu- it's been two weeks. It's been two weeks. He continues his personal assault of the prestige and stature of the job of Senate Majority Leader. Hopefully the damage oh, that he God. continues to do won't be permanent, but by it, there, there's now some Sorry, interesting evidence that his constant <coughs> references and attacks he on, the, do that. on the Koch brothers um, from the Senate floor um, where, <laughs> where he won't bring up any bills, but he will simply he will simply attack the Koch brothers. He wants he's big had, money out of politics, Alan. He's, he's, had, he's had the effect of now causing other major donors to want to operate in the shadows. Because once you start from the Senate floor attacking big donors, whether it's Koch brothers or Marvin Adelson or, or Tom Steyer, the, the, uh, the, the wealthy Democrat from San Francisco, you're going to drive this stuff indoors and uh, and whether people attack or not is fine. The Senate Majority Leader doing it from the Senate floor is just wrong. Maybe I'm old-fashioned, but I think that it's, embar- it's an embarrassment to him, to the Senate, to the role of Majority Leader, and, and to Democrats. You Dan, are old-fashioned. He also wants to bring back earmarks. I'm, but, I'm in favor of that. I like that idea. But Dan Lipner, tell me a story. Well, go- going back to the story I was cheated out of last week, thanks to the World Cup, but I will predict that the Dow will break 30,000 when all companies that are publicly listed become Christian scientists in order to avoid Obamacare, <laughs> thanks to the Hobby Lobby decision. <laughs> I waited for that. <laughs> I waited for that. In a, in a Yogi Berra it's deja vu all over again. The Florida governor's races continue to just stupefy all logic and politics where you have the current incumbent, Rick Scott, the Republican, who has always been about two inches away from total indictment in his Health South scandal. And you also have the former Republican governor of Florida, in um, Charlie, Crist. Charlie Crist. He is now in a neck and neck race for retaking the governor's race in Florida. The trick here is how a largely Republican regime in the legislature is going to be able to deal with a turncoat, i.e. Charlie Crist, should he get elected, you're going to see a legislative logjam that's going to take Kaopectate to release. You didn't like that one, Alan? <laughs> oh, come on. How many he times is, woken up he's yet. still yeah. sleeping for the redistricting? Oh, I thought that would have been. I think the Christian scientist thing went better. Though. <laughs> no, no, his nagger thing got us all locked up. That's what it's all asleep. Yeah, I, I think in the future we're going to go with nudge instead. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
What's in yesterday's Washington Post? A summary is not like the perfect right. story. Yeah, exactly. I'd rather have some history. I think that's yeah, more interesting. Possibly. Hey, uh, I want to give a special shout-out thanks to our associate producers, Yarden Kekon, Eric Thomas, uh, and on behalf of Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, Carl Tuvin, Alan Moore, Dan Lipner, I am your moderator, Radio's Justin Russell. We will be back live next week, live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Bob? The place to be. Absolutely. You can follow us on the web, www.backroompolitics.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Backroom Politics, and you can follow us on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash backroompolitics, I think. Uh, is that right, Yarden? Is, you think so? Not the definitive answer I was looking for, kid. Really not helping. Uh, as she points to Eric Thomas, our other associate producer, it's his fault. Okay. Hey, we'll see you next week live from Shelly's Back Room. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Bye-bye. <laughs> Weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.